0: Isaiah chapter 1. We just uh, began the book of Isaiah, and uh, this evening we're going to look at verses 24 through 31. Isaiah is going to speak now about the degenerate city. Last week, verses 1 through 23 dealt with the wickedness of Judah. And God spoke to them and told them what their wickedness was, and now He's going to talk about the judgment that's going to come because of the people's wickedness of this degenerate city. In verses 2 through 6, last week, God laid out his complaint against his children, that is Israel. And the reason for Isaiah's whole prophecy is because of Judah's abandonment, Israel's abandonment of God. They had abandoned God. They They forsook God. God's people have sinned, they've done wrong, and they've done wickedly. And God has told them what they needed to do to make things right. But knowing they wouldn't repent, God's going to pronounce their judgment beginning here now in verse 24. And so now it was time to settle the score. The people were going to be judged and punished or disciplined for their sins. So let's begin now with chapter 1, verses 24 through 26. And it says, therefore, all right, the therefore... Speaks of everything that he said in verses 1 through 23, particularly verses 2 through 6. Therefore, the Lord says, The Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. We should be thankful that because no matter what we do, God will not leave us nor forsake us. God will never stop being the loving God. There is a God in heaven. It says here, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, who cares so much for his righteousness, being offended. It's who he is. And his commitment to his own people cause us, or or, or is our only hope. His commitment to his own cause is our only hope. He will even score with his enemies. Nobody's going to get away with anything, and redemption will never be done away with. Therefore, like I said, it refers back to everything that was said in verses 1 through 23. And it refers mostly to the nation's condition that he laid out in verses 2 through 6. And the description is true. There is no righteousness in the land, so the Lord will do something to change that. God's judgment will become so severe that what they were already experiencing, and in the judgments that were coming, purification and cleansing would be the result. Judah's deliverance can only come through painful and stressful judgment. Notice he says here, I will rid myself of my adversaries. My enemies. I'm going to get rid of them. Verse 14 reminds us that because of their sins, the people of Jerusalem became a burden to God. It was a terrible and annoying burden, and a burden that God wasn't called on to put up with, nor should He. So He was going to get rid of His enemies. Those who caused this burden to weigh heavy on His heart or heavy on the Lord, they were His enemies. And the sad thing is that these enemies were the Israelites themselves, God's people. They weren't outsiders. They weren't foreigners. They were His people. And the Bible, Bible clearly teaches us that someone who continues in their sin is God's enemy, and God has to deal with them. He must get rid of them. Notice what he says in, in Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 13. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations... And the countries all around her. She has rebelled against my judgments. By doing wickedness more. Notice more than the nations. The nations means the heathens. They they, they did more wickedness than the nations. The heathens. And against my statutes. More than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments. And they have not walked in my statutes. You have multiplied. Disobedience more. Than the nations that are all around you. Therefore. Thus says the Lord God, Thus shall my anger be spent, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be avenged, and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. God says three times more. He uses the word more three times. You guys have been more obedient. You've been more wicked. You have been more terrible than the heathen nations around you. The Lord explains the terrible judgment that's coming to the people who are left in the city and in the land. He says in in, in Ezekiel 5, he says that pestilence and famine and the Babylonian army are going to kill many people and the rest will be scattered. Why? Because God was pouring out his wrath and God was accomplishing his fury upon his people. God's anger against sin is a holy anger. Now, when God, you know, when we hear of God pouring out his judgment and avenging himself, saving, you know, getting, getting rid of those that, that have become his enemies, God is not throwing a temper tantrum. All right? He's not, you know, just throwing a hissy fit and, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'm going to get even with these folks. But, but it's a holy anger because he's a holy God. Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. And there could be no doubt that these great judgments would come because it was the Lord himself who said it would come. Jesus himself warned the church at Ephesus that they would lose their light if they refused to repent and obey obey his instructions. You know, it's really a sad thing when a local church openly disobeys God's word and they begin to act Like the unsaved people of the world. And once a church has lost its witness for Jesus Christ, what's left? What can it do? The sinner, and not just the sin, is like a tiresome burden to God. A burden that he will get rid of. Look at verse 25. He says, "'I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy.'" When God turns his hand against us, it's not a disaster. It's, not, it's an act of restoration. God's discipline accomplishes just what he intends it to accomplish. And that's to purify and to restore at the same time. Now, we can expect the goodness of God to show up in the most unlikely experiences. When God turns his hand against us to purify us, we need to trust him to restore us. Now here he's looking toward the future. And the future is gloomy. They've gone as deep into the pit of sin as you can possibly go. And yet God is making a promise to them about the future. He's talking about the future when he'll turn his hand upon the people again. And thoroughly wash away the dross. The dross and the silver were, was the impurities. The silver had turned to dross. The silver being Israel. God's people. They have turned to dross. The impurities has ruined the silver. God is saying, I will wash away that dross. I will wash away those impurities and I will take away all of your alloy. That is all the contaminants in you. God's hand has been at rest, but now he's raising his hand. And it's raised to do a mighty work of purifying judgment to restore the church. The judgment that was coming isn't to totally destroy, but to purify And I believe God is taking the church to that tonight, through the last year. And who knows how far into the next year, maybe the next. He said to thoroughly purge away your dross, the impurities in our lives. And this here speaks of the unjust rulers and leaders in Israel and the sinful things that the people were doing, along with the, the, the general hypocrisy and sinfulness of the people themselves. Their worship had turned into a procedure. Remember, God said that you just parade through my courts and you bring your sacrifices and your words, but but your heart is far from me. It was just a routine ritual. It was a lot of motion without devotion and emotion of the heart. Their bodies were there in God's house, worshiping in the temple, but their hearts were somewhere else. They had to go through a complete and severe judgment so that the city could continue to exist. And refining silver is a major process. And the refining that has to take place is severe too if the nation is going to be saved. And again, Hebrews tells us those who the Lord loves, he chastens. So the purification process cannot be done by anybody but God. And if sinners are going to be saved, they have to be cleansed, and the sin has to be flushed out of their system like a a, a sickening disease. It has to be flushed out of their system. Look at verse 26. He says, I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. The sin, after the sin is flushed from their system, he says, then I will give you good judges like you used to have. I will give you wise counselors like you once had. And once again, Jerusalem will be called the city of justice and the faithful city. God says here that the day will come and I will restore you. Now, remember back when God said he'd restore? Well, this is the promise here, restoration. He says, and then you will be known as the city of righteousness. Judah's future depended on how they responded to God's offer of his forgiving grace. If they were willing to turn from their sin and obey God, he would show them favor materially and spiritually and protect them from their enemies. Verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. Zion, again, another name for Jerusalem, was also the name of the area where the temple was built. The word redeemed here refers to deliverance. And that deliverance is obtained by, a way, by way of paying a price. That's what the word redeemed means. It means by the pain of a price. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He purchased us with his blood. He bought us with his blood. The way that this deliverance is to be accomplished is mentioned specifically by judgment and righteousness. But the people of Jerusalem, they wouldn't wouldn't be led led to believe or receive any comfort thinking they could redeem themselves through their own righteousness. Because those who are really devoted to God would know they had no righteousness. Not only that, but the scriptures are reliable when it says that justice and righteousness are gifts of God and they can't be received by men. The psalmist said in Psalm 49, 6 through 8, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him for the redemption of their souls is costly. It costs Jesus his life. For us to be redeemed. No amount of money could redeem us from our sin. So the justice and the righteousness mentioned here belongs to God and not man. It's God's righteousness that we need. Man cannot bring about that righteousness. And the reason that God gave this promise is so that the godly would be comforted. Through God's justice and righteousness, Jerusalem and those who, uh, who repented would be the ones who would be redeemed. Verse 28, the destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together and those who forsake the Lord shall be condemned. Those who repented would be redeemed with justice and righteousness. Now, the reference here is to those who are not the redeemed of Jerusalem. These are the ones who have rebelled against God. And as a result, they will be the ones to be destroyed and they'll all be destroyed together. The wicked and the apostates have to be broken. If the silver is going to be refined, the dross, the impurities has to be purged out of the silver or they'll be consumed, God says. They'll be consumed. In other words, they will perish. They will come to an end. And this refers to total destruction of the people. This is a serious warning by God to those who forsake him. And for that group of people who have been addressed all through the chapter, the ones that God has been talking to all through the chapter, they have to be destroyed if Israel is going to be redeemed. Verses 29 through 31. For they, speaking of Israel, shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. For you shall be like a terebinth, whose leaf fades, and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tinder, and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together, and no one shall quench them. Those who repented would be redeemed. Uh, I'm sorry, though, uh, verses 29 through 31, these verses are used to give a good reason for the warning in verse 28. God says, you will be ashamed of how you worshiped your idols in in the woods, you know, by those sacred oaks. He says, you will be embarrassed and you'll be ashamed because you worshiped in gardens that you dedicated to idols. He says, you'll be like those huge trees with withered, withered leaves. You'll be like a garden that has no water. And he says, even the strongest among you, will disappear like straw. And that their evil deeds, the evil things that they did, will be like a spark that sets them on fire. They and all the evil things that they did will burn up together and no one will be able to put out that fire. Isaiah begs us here to accept the offer of repentance by showing us what will happen if we refuse God's invitation. Now, God isn't slapping anybody around here. He's stressing his point. He's making it clear. Because a lot of people think that it doesn't matter to God what I do. It doesn't matter to God about what decisions I make in my life or my attitudes or my feelings or my thoughts. Do they really make a difference to God? They do. God is saying that every moment of your life, everything that you do in your life, it matters to me. Everything in your life matters. Your choices, they have lasting consequences. He says, that's why I'm challenging you with the truth. You can choose your choices, but you you can't choose the result of those choices. If we choose the path of our lives that's based on earthly things that we foolishly want, we're going to end up with nothing. We'll end up in ruin. Now, here's the thought. Those who forsake the Lord will be consumed. And this is seen is in the fact, in verse 29, when it says, they will be ashamed. The word they is that the word they means, that's speaking of the people. They will be ashamed. The people will be ashamed. And when the punishment comes on the transgressors transgressors, in verse 28, they will be ashamed of the things that, that they took joy in. You know, and you can look back on your life and you, know, and you can see, man, I can't believe those, those are the things that I thought were dear to me. Those were the things that I put so much stock in. Those things that that I thought were so important, you know, once I came to God, those things pale. Pale in comparison to to God's love and the salvation he's given me. One result of God's punishing hand, verse 25 says, is that the sinner will be ashamed about what what was once the very thing that he put his confidence in. The very things that he took joy in. The terebinth trees that he mentions here. The terebinth trees is an inference to idols. Isaiah is coming, condemning them for worshiping these trees. Because they had made these trees an object of worship. They made them divine objects like God's. So they'd worship near or under these trees. Think of it. God had chosen Israel. To worship him. But what what did Judah choose to worship? A tree. A tree, a symbol of man's fall into sin. And yet man can't find in nature or in worshiping nature an answer to the deepest needs of man's soul. He said, you chose these things, verse 29 says, which you have desired. This suggests a choice from the number of other objects that are in front of them. Of all that was in front of you, you chose these trees. Of all the people on earth that were in front of him, God chose the children of Israel. And of all that the children of Israel had in front of them to choose from, from to love and to worship, they chose to love and worship trees and gardens. And going back, to what God had every, everything that God had in front of him. All the other things that God could have chosen. Of all the people on the earth that were in front of him, he chose the children of Israel. The desire and the choice of the people has been for the mighty trees. We read in, in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, because although they knew God, They did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore... Again, as a result of that choice, it says, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts and worshiped and served the the creature rather than the creator. God says, you want to choose those things? I will give you up. I will let you go. I will turn you over to those things. You can have what you want. You can do your thing. But the time would come when they would be ashamed of what they wanted and what they had done. They worshiped these cherubim trees and gardens. Gardens here seem to refer clearly to unlawful places of worship. Isaiah 65 3 says, All day long they insult me to my face by worshiping idols in their sacred gardens. In Isaiah 60, 17, it says, Those who consecrate and purify themselves in a sacred garden with its idol in the center. Now, You know, we all know that gardens in and of themselves, they're harmless. They can be just a a nice, harmless pastime. Something that people enjoy. Enjoy gardening and planting flowers and taking care of the garden. But you see, when the gardens were devoted to the place of idolatry, which seems to be what was going on here, those gardens became objects of worship which they would be ashamed of later on. He says in verse 29, which you have chosen. And once again, God had chosen Israel to be his people, but Israel had chosen gardens to worship. The difference between God's choice and Israel's choice is very clear. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. Israel to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Can you imagine? God says, I've chosen you to be my people, to be a special treasure over all the other people on the face of the earth. You are mine. I am your God. You are a special treasure to me. The things that you desire, the things that I desire, the inward quality of the heart and the choices we make and the things that we choose shows the desires of our heart and can only lead to shame. That's why Solomon said in Proverbs 4, 23 through 27, keep your heart, guard your heart with all diligence. He says, because out of it, that is out of your heart, spring the issues of life. He says, put away from you a deceitful mouth. Watch what you say and put perverse lips far from you. Again, watch what we talk about. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. You know, protect yourself from the things that your eyes look at. And it says, ponder the path of your feet. Watch out where you go. Let all your ways be established, that is, rendered sure of your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. He says in verse 30 For you shall be. After God says the nation will be ashamed of their choice to worship trees and, and in the gardens, they will be embarrassed of those mighty trees. You shall be embarrassed. You shall be ashamed. Those trees whose leaves will fade, he says. Even though it was a mighty tree that Israel chose to worship and that Israel enjoyed so much. He says, now the nation will become like that mighty tree. But, in, but, but not in the sense that that tree stood and, and, and was and, and in its glory and was surrounded by all of its beautiful lush greenery. But that tree would begin to fade. And its leaves would begin to wither. He said, Israel, you're going to be just like those trees. Not so big and beautiful. Not so lush and green. But you're going to be like those trees that are dying. Like the leaves that are fading. He said, like a garden without water. The people would also become like a garden without water. But not all green and lush. Like the ones they had chosen. But a garden without water. Dried up. They're going to be like a garden that's dried up. They're going to be like trees whose leaves have dried up and they can easily catch fire or get bug infested and die. A garden without water. You know what that's going to turn out to be like? It's not going to be very desirable. It's not going to be very enjoyable. It's not going to be very beautiful. And whatever is growing in it, it's going to die. And it's going to be replaced by weeds. No water. Water. The very thing that's essential to keep things alive and make the garden pleasant. A pleasant thing to man, it will be missing in this garden. Revelation twenty-two seventeen 17 says, And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The living water is a picture of the Holy Spirit. He said, Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. You see, if we are not in communion and having fellowship and dwelling with and, and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and leading and guiding us, we're going to shrivel up and die, spiritually speaking. The living water, we need the living water. We need the Holy Spirit to, to, to survive spiritually speaking. And the Spirit and the Bride say, come, those who thirst, come. Take this water of life freely. And by Isaiah's use of such eye-catching pictures of these terebinth trees that were once big and strong and green, and they're dying, and the leaves are now fading, in these gardens that were once beautiful, and they now have no water, and they're dying out. These eye-catching pictures God shows us what must be the kind of end that's waiting for those who forsake God. You're going to be just like those dying trees in that that dried-up garden. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we will shrivel up and die spiritually. Verse 31. He goes on to say about the strong shall be as tender and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together and no one shall quench them. He says the strong shall be like tender. He's talking about the strong people, the strong ones. In other words, the strongest, um, the strongest people among the other people. They're going to disappear like straw, he says. The evil things that they've done will be that spark. It'll be like that match that sets that straw on fire. And they and all of their evil works will burn up together and no one will be able to put out that fire. Those who are strong among the people. And and, and, and they're, they're just like the mighty tree. They're the ones that will Perish. A strong, beautiful tree can have leaves, but will fade. And so the strongest among Jerusalem will one day lose their strength. Maybe the people, those stronger people, thought, they thought of themselves as being the strongest. And maybe they were thought of as the strongest by other people. But those who actually were the strongest were the ones that would perish. And he says here, the work of the strong, that is, the work of the strong, everything that they did, all of their evil works will perish. Everything they do, including their idolatry, comes out of a proud heart. And, and the strong people's work, he says, it's like a spark, a spark to set to tinder. Tinder is something that's very flammable. So the strong people's work is like a spark, like a a match that's going to set on fire, this tinder. And and it's something that catches fire real quick, and it's going to become a devouring fire. And here God compares the mighty people whose evil works eat them up. He compares compares them to a roaring fire. And we know what kind of damage a a, a roaring fire, an out-of-control fire can do. And our lives can be destroyed quickly by a small, deadly spark of sin. It doesn't take much. Both will burn together, the people and their wicked deeds. It says here, both will burn together. The work that sinful man has done, along with the man himself, will perish. Both will be destroyed together, the man and his work. And it says here, and no one shall be quenched. In other words, no one will be able to stop this fire. This last sentence here emphasizes God's total destruction and brings a scary end to chapter 1. And since the things that caused the judgment that's to come are spiritual in nature, which were the sins of the nation... It's only natural that the punishment will be in relation to those sins that they committed. And it's not going to be just a simple carrying away of the nation into exile. Nor, nor just the death of, the, of that present generation. But it will be spiritual. But even in this first chapter of condemnation and judgment, there's a ray of hope. We're not told exactly what the basis of this hope is, other than it's God's decision to save a remnant. And in other parts of Scripture, we learn that this hope is based on the work of Jesus Christ himself. So in closing, what, if the, what, what happens if the people didn't repent? God would send a fiery judgment that would purify the dross, And burn up those who rebelled and made themselves God's enemies. Isaiah closes this first message here in chapter 1 with a promise of hope. That one day Jerusalem would be a city of righteousness. Now there might be people here tonight. There might be people watching. Wondering. Which way should I go? What way should I go? You might be far from God. You may have lost your way. You may have lost your righteousness. What you need to know is that there is a Redeemer who lives. And go to Him. Be honest with Him. Deal deal honestly with Him about your, your, your real problems. And he'll save you from all of them. A man's will, again, a man's will, which, which God is not going to, you know, he's given us free will. It's only a man's will that will keep them from receiving God's corrective purposes. If a man says, you know what, I'm going to choose my idols and I'm going to choose my sins. I'm going to choose what I want to do in my life and how I do it. And I'm, going to, I'm going to make that choice. Then there's no fire, no earthquake, no earthly power to, to free them from their will. If we won't let go of an evil thing, we will have to share in the fate of that evil thing. God will bring judgment against that evil thing, and I will also be judged because of that evil thing, because I refuse to give it up. To give our affection, to give our love, and to give our worship to unworthy things is the same as choosing to bring shame and self contempt upon ourselves. It's 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 our it's to our own ruin. So again, we have a choice. We can choose to live the way we want to, according to our sin. We can choose the things that we want to do, but there will be a day. Unless we give up those things, unless we confess those things, and we give our life to those things, along with ourselves, will perish. They will lead to ruin. You must make the choice. Father, we come before you this evening to thank you again for your word. Father, we thank you for the instruction. We thank you that, God, you have given us hope. Even in the midst of darkness, God, you have given us a great hope, Lord. And that hope is in Jesus Christ. Your word says that if we are Faithful to confess our sins. That his blood will cleanse us of all sin. sin. Now that is not a license to sin. But it's a means of redemption from our sin. The precious blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. No matter how much or how dark the blood of Christ will, con- will cleanse that sin. But you must confess, you must repent, and you must come to Christ. Father, we thank you for our time together, Lord. We pray that, Lord, your spirit would convict and that God people would repent of their sins, that we would examine ourselves. And that, Father, we would deal honestly with our sins, Lord. And that we deal honestly with you because we can't hide them from you. You see right through us, God. You see right to the heart. So, Father, we thank you. We praise you. We give you honor and glory. We pray, God, that you'd be with each one here as they make their way home, God. Be with them through the rest of the week. And, God, we pray that you would bring us together safely Sunday and that, again, to come into your house and to worship you, Lord. To worship you and you only, the true and living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right.